Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scano studio today are Sir Robert Worcester, who is chairman of the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta Commemoration Committee, and he's also deputy chair and trustee of the Magna Carta Trust. Interestingly, he's a Kansas City native, but he's now a naturalized citizen of the United Kingdom. And Joel Collins, who is a Columbia attorney, but who is head of the James Otis Committee, part of the American Trial Attorneys Association. And if you would, Joel, tell us a little bit about the Otis Lectures and why they exist. I'd be happy to. I'm proud to tell you that ABOTA, that's the American Board of Trial Advocates, has a strong youth education program. And several years ago, my good friend Chris Duggan started a program in Boston and invited me to come and participate in it. It was a program designed to educate teenage children, mostly high school juniors and seniors, about our Constitution. And it coincided with the federal statute that requires every school receiving any federal aid to have a program about the United States Constitution on Constitution Day, which is September 17 each year. And from that start in Boston, uh, the James Otis Lecture Series has spread. It now is nationwide. We don't have one in every one of our chapters yet, but that certainly is our goal. Uh, South Carolina has a proud tradition. I think we're having our sixth James Otis program. Wonderful. And why did you decide to select Sir Robert Worcester to come talk about the Magna Carta? Well, that's an interesting story, I think. I met Sir Robert when I went over for the first meeting of the stakeholders. That's a group of people who are planning the 800th uh, commemoration in Runnymede. I was immediately impressed with him, and I knew that there was this strong connection between our United States Constitution and Magna Carta, and so I broached the subject. It occurred to me that a true celebration of the United States Constitution uh, could certainly include and should certainly include an appreciation for Magna Carta. Sir Robert, before we get into the Magna Carta, let's talk a little bit about you personally. I find the fact that you're from Kansas City and you moved to the United Kingdom, became a naturalized citizen. You were knighted. How did all of that come about? Because earlier before we went on the air, you were talking about your mother's cheese grits casserole. Well, as well as the cheese grits, uh, we also often had uh, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding because with the name like Worcester, of course, the heritage is really very, very English. So born in Kansas City uh, in, in a hospital in Missouri, but since I went to the University of Kansas, I really pretend that I'm a, I'm a Kansan <laughs> and I uh, have a loyalty to both states, but really I lean toward Kansas rather than Missouri. But as you know, uh, Kansas City is two-thirds on one side of the river mm-hmm. and in Missouri, and, and gets at Kansas is, is on the other side of the river, and that sure confuses a lot of people in England, that's for sure. <laughs> So, how long have you got? I've got until breakfast, if that's all right with you, uh, to talk about that, because uh, I can't remember how long ago I knew about the Magna Carta. But it's been in my consciousness just about forever. And I took my uh, 
current wife of 30 years, 31 years ago, when we were keeping company and about to get married, I took her to see my only living relative back in Kansas City, my old blind aunt, a year before she died. And she said to Margaret, my wife, Lady Worcester, uh, I can remember Bobby, as she called me, saying that he was going to live in London for some time during his life. I have no recollection of that, but I had it on good witness. And all I knew when I was three years old about London, it was the biggest city in the world. And I thought, well, if it's the biggest city in the world, I'm going to have a good look see and maybe live there. So all that time growing up, I was more and more conscious. I had a good education, public school education uh, in English literature and English history even English music, uh, Georgian architecture. And uh, do you remember about the Ealing comedies, the Lavender Hill Mob and those those great movies, mm-hmm. often with, uh, with Alec Guinness in them? I must have seen those time and time again in the little arts theater we had in Kansas City. I saw the Red Shoes at least five times. And it was just instilled, and that was before television, so you didn't get nearly the competition in those days. So how did you get to, you went to the University of Kansas. Went to the University of Kansas, uh, studied business, and then uh, also took a second uh, major in political science and went to work, uh, this was after Korea, uh, because Korea is part of the story, and that uh, led me to being given a job at McKinsey and Company, the uh, the huge uh, management consultancy firm, a, a very very important break in my life, and uh, every time I had the opportunity, I applied to go to London office, and they said, "No, you're doing fine here," and so they weren't going to send me over there. So I was headhunted out of uh, that to be the financial uh, chief financial officer of an organization which at the time was the largest survey research organization in the country called Opinion Research Corporation in Princeton. Now, when you say survey research, this is for advertising, politics, polling? Uh, well, polling is is universally in the market research trade. Uh, 99% of the publicity and less than 1% of the, of the turnover of the companies. And certainly, we've got 1,100 people in my company now that I started in 1969 called Mori, now Ipsos Mori. I sold the company to Ipsos uh, about 10 years ago. Well, at some point, you were knighted. Now, you had to be a naturalized English citizen, Yes and no. Um, It was a very strange situation because I became naturalized and became a subject of Her Majesty. Uh, after 40 years uh, living there, and that was on the 8th of September, 2004. And on the 28th of September, I received a letter. Uh, My driver handed it to me. I was sitting in the back of the car with a very close friend uh, going away from a trust that we'd both sat on, the Wild Fallon Wetlands Trust, And I opened that letter, and he grabbed me by the arm, and he said, Are you all right? Mm -hmm. And I just handed him the letter, and it was an honorary knighthood. 
So I rang up this lady that was I was supposed to check in with, and I said, uh, I'm not sure I can take it. And she said, you're not going to refuse it, are you? I said, oh, no, no, I'm not going to refuse it. But I became a subject. I became a citizen three weeks ago. She said, oh, that's all right. There's a process for that. It happens very rarely, but it does happen occasionally. But it'll have to go back to the palace to get the approval of Her Majesty and Prince Philip. And I said, they're not going to take it away from me, are they? <laughs> and she said, no, no, you've got it. You've got an honorary. But it became, at the end of the year, a full knighthood. So that's why I carry the title Sir Robert Worcester, KBE, Knight of the British Empire, instead of Robert Worcester, KBE, because Americans, Douglas MacArthur, for instance, was an honorary knight. George Bush, George Sr., I think, I'm not sure whether George uh, W., uh, got an, a knighthood, or, an honorary knighthood, or but, not? But it, don't it's, think so. It's it's the real thing. That's not a hereditary. It is the real thing. It's not hereditary. No, hereditary. There are extremely few hereditary knighthoods. They're called uh, baronets, and the abbreviation for that is Bart, B-A-R-T, or B-T, and uh, so that those are very rare, very rare, and there are only two that I know of that have been appointed uh, to. That to baronetcy in the last thirty years. Yeah. Well, what are the folks in Kansas City when you go home? When you went to your former home, because obviously your home is in is in England now. You are Sir Robert Worcester. What are, what are the, what are the boys you grew up with? How do they feel about this this Sir Robert's now coming in the door? None of us believe it, and that includes me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just astonishing. Uh, Tim Sullivan was uh, president of the uh, William and Mary College, and uh, when I was made chancellor of the University of Kent, uh, just after I was knighted, he said, they're just heaping honors on you, aren't they? Because I was also the third American ever to be made a freeman of the city of London. And that happened when uh, I was at a breakfast, and the person, the woman who was uh, head of, really the head of the city at the time, she's the Lord Mayor of London is not the head of the city of London, confusingly. But there are a lot of confusing things, like when when you've got a knighthood, you become Sir Robert, but if you go to the Lords, then you become Lord Worcester. So you go from Mr. to Robert to to Lord, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, But the reason that, uh, that I was uh, was able to be the third ever American to be a freeman is that the woman came up to me and she said, uh, Bob, you'll be very pleased to know that we're going to abolish a law that was passed in 1422. And I said, why do you think I would be in favor of repealing? Uh, and she said, because it will affect you. I said, how is that possible? She said, well, in 1442, the good burghers of the city of London thought there were too many foreigners uh, infiltrating the city and uh, taking, taking the money and running. And uh, they decided that only subjects of the crown could be a freeman of the city of London. 
And we think some of you are making such a wonderful contribution to London, and particularly the city of London, the, the center of it, that uh, we should enable them to become freemen. So the first one was the American ambassador there, a man named Ray Seitz, who uh, used to live in Charleston. And uh, the second one was the chairman of uh, 3M Company, and he had been the uh, very active in one of the livery companies, another curious beast in in London and in Britain. And I won't go into that. Uh, and they asked me to be the third one. And you know what the privileges are? That if you're found guilty of treason, you can be hung with a silken rope instead of a sisal rope. <laughs> uh, the second one is that if you're found drunk and disorderly in the city of London... Uh, they will take you into the mansion house, put you in the small jail, the one-room jail that they've got in the mansion house, and you can sleep it off. And no, you know, they'll let you go in the morning or whenever you're sobering up. And they will allow you the rare privilege of driving your sheep across London Bridge. Now, the, the punchline of that story is that when I was made... Uh, Freeman of the City of London, there was a sheep and cattle disease that was in the country, and to contain it, they were not allowing the transport of any hoofed animals. So I was deprived from the privilege until that law, that ordinance, whatever it was, uh, was abandoned uh, when the when it was all contained. You're talking and, about mad, could, the, the so-called mad cow. Yeah, that's right, mad yeah. cow disease. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, let's talk now about the Magna Carta. Yes, sir. First of all, tell our listeners, I, I know most of them have had a good education, and somewhere along the line, Ronnie Mead and the Magna Carta and the king and the barons is part of their their knowledge, but maybe not. So if you would, tell us a little bit about why 800 years we're really celebrating this document. Well, uh, the Letterman Show had David Cameron on a few months ago, and they asked him a number of questions, and he turned out to not know some of the things that you just said that nearly everybody knows the, except the Prime Minister of the United, United Kingdom. And uh, he, when he was asked uh, where was it signed, the Magna Carta, he didn't use the old joke of, well, it was signed at the bottom, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, what he said was that he didn't know. And what I then said in a letter to him the next day that I uh, just said, I've known him for a long time, and I said, Dear David, if I'd only been able to have a, a word in your earpiece last night on the Letterman Show, and he asked you where was it signed, you should have said nowhere. It wasn't signed. It was sealed. Because we have this curious 19th century etching of King John, the barons, the bishops, and all that standing around, and he's got a pen in his hand. There is no indication that he could even read or write, <laughs> much less sign the document. And nobody signed, no kings or queens signed documents for several hundred years after Twelve fifteen, but they had a wax seal. They had a wax seal. They had a wax seal, and that seal ex still exists on several of the extant Magna Cartas. Now, let me tell you about those. There are seventeen that we know of that exist in 
Great Britain, one in the United States at the National Archives. It was the Ross Perot copy that was sold by Sotheby's for $21.5 million about 10 years ago to uh, David Rubenstein. And I met David Rubenstein to talk about the Magna Carta about three years ago. And he told me that he'd put it on permanent loan at the National Archives. So we have a copy here, but there are 16, 16 more in, in, in the United Kingdom. One in Canberra. Okay. One in Canberra and the rest of them in the UK. There are four of the 1215 editions. Now, we think there are about as many as 40 because they were written in Latin, but they were sent out to the, to the counties, to the sheriffs in the counties. Everybody's heard of the sheriff of Nottingham, but they're not all bad guys the way he was. Uh, and they were read out. But one of the things that happened was when the 1216 version was issued at the time of the accession of King John's son after he died, a nine-year-old Henry III. Henry III was asked to, or was told by his guardian, William Marshall, to issue the Magna Carta to strengthen his claim to the throne. And it worked. Mm -hmm. Then in 1217, they took a look at some of the things, and they were out of date because of the death of bad King John. And by the way, the eminent historian that you'll know the name of, Nicholas Vincent at uh, University of East Anglia, was asking an article in the Telegraph newspaper last year if he deserved to be called Bad King John. He said, no, he was much worse than that. <laughs> and now that I know a lot about him, he was a nasty piece of work. There's no question about well, it. Well, he, he might have a lot of competition, don't you think? Not, nobody's even in his class. Nobody's even in his class. The reason really goes back to something I think, well, the BBC described it as the most important battle in history that nobody's ever heard of. Can I, can I develop that oh, for a minute? Oh, surely. I went uh, in August to over to France near Lille to a little town, nice little town, called Bouvines. And Bouvines was the site of the battle at which the emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Otto II, I think it was, was King John's nephew. And there was a British contingent in his army, and they lost that battle to Philip. And that meant that King John, bad King John, had lost Normandy, which half of France what we know now is France was in the province of the King of England mm -hmm. at the time, or vice versa, because he was also had a lot, a lot of French titles. But he lost that. That he was so anxious to gain. They called him John Lackland. His own father, Henry II, called him John Lackland because the, his other sons had provinces in Aquitaine, for instance, was in Richard. King Richard the uh, Lionhearted. The Lionhearted. Yeah. I mean, a great hero, and yet he was pretty useless. He just spent his time out there in the in the field because he loved doing battles and and all of that, and couldn't even speak English. Of course, he he, was, he spoke French and Latin, as most of them did. Mm -hmm. It's a very the 13th century. I have found to be your historian, and I'm not, but I I do have an appointment, you know. 
The Lion and Winter was a great movie. Oh, it was one of the best. And when um, when Catherine Hepburn, uh, the, the three sons decide with uh, with Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry the Second's wife, to go against him and to depose the husband and father. Uh, they didn't get very far because that great and terrible king, he saw him coming. Uh, but she turns to the camera and she says, during all of this battle going on between them, uh, what family doesn't have its little ups and downs? And it was one of the funniest pieces of movie I ever saw in my life. And I watch it regularly. I watched it a couple of months ago. Rewatched it. Gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking to Sir Robert Worcester about the Magna Carta, along with Columbia attorney and chair of the James Otis Lecture Series, Joel Collins. All right, gentlemen, let's get specifically to the Magna Carta. I think, Sir Robert, I could I could listen to your segues and your tangents all afternoon, but uh, give a brief of what the document was, and then, Joel, why you think it's important for South Carolina school children to hear something about the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta was called by Lord Denning the greatest constitutional document of all time. And the reason was probably not in the minds of the barons in 1213 at St. Albans when they first met in England, or in 1214 uh, at Bury St. Edmunds, and certainly not at 1215. It was a, a peace treaty to stop the war of the barons against the king and force the king to return to what they called the ancient laws, which were best articulated by his grandfather, Henry I, in the coronation oath of 1100. So here we are a century later with the grandson being forced by force of arms when he lost the support of the city of London and had to admit that his army had been defeated in battle and his castles had been seized, for the most part, by the barons, and they presented him in January in the city with this list of demands and the city where his wealth was centered, was effectively in the hands of the rebels. And so he'd been done in, and he uh, did the deal called later the Magna Carta because he had nowhere to go, and it was just a stalling device because at the same time that he was agreeing to the Magna Carta and the scribes were, were writing out in Latin all these copies that could go out to the, to the uh, uh, sheriffs. He was plotting to go to the Pope and put his crown, his fealty, they say, uh, to, the, to the Pope and also commit to go on a crusade. And if you went on a crusade... You were absolved from most of the criminal acts that you could be that could be used against you. Certainly in the in the civil, if not the canon law, uh, the law of the church. And ten weeks later, the Magna Carta was annulled, and anyone following it 
was excommunicated by the Pope because by this time his his acolyte was King John among others, many others. I never I never heard that before. That that didn't make the early history books that I had, you know, in elementary school and where the barons at running me and as you say they were sealing, not signing. Never heard about the fact that it was gone, dead. Yeah. But this this amazing man now, first thing Going back to the Battle of Bouvines, the most important battle that nobody's ever heard of in history. The second one is a man named William Marshall, a man that almost nobody's heard of. But William Marshall was loyal to the Angevin family and to King John. Or the, the, the Anjou, that's royal line. The royal line of the Henrys, Henry I, Henry II. Uh, King John, and then Henry III, his nine-year-old son, who was not in London at the time, William Marshall rode out as his guardian to collect him on the road to get him into London and to reissue the Magna Carta in 1216, just a few days after the death of his father. And it's got not the king's seal on it, but William Marshall's seal on it, the Earl of Pembroke, as uh, the guarantor, the guardian of the new king. And he was successfully crowned, became the king. Uh, The Magna Carta of 1216 was then issued, again sent out to the sheriffs to be read in the county courts, and then they had time to look at some of the things that no longer needed to be in it. Mm-hmm. And one of which that was uh, was forgiven was Article 51. Now, Article 51 was pretty serious in, in my view because it guaranteed, uh, King John was forced to guarantee that he'd banish all foreign-born knights. And just having had my knighthood that year, when I first gave that speech in Lincoln Cathedral in uh, 2005, I said I wasn't going to go along with uh, still having Article 51. But when I found it wasn't even in the 1217, I relaxed a bit about that. Then jump forward to 1225, because from 1225 and that issue, which was even shorter, instead of 63, it went down to 38, and then I think to 33, Uh, chapters or points, Uh, but today there are three that are as they were in law uh, in the Magna Carta. One is the English church shall be free. The second one is that London may elect its own mayor, which was a very important thing for the city of London because they didn't like the king being able to elect the guy that was going to run the city in those days. And that's still in act. And then there's Article 39 and 40, which are the combination of trial by jury, which we believe very strongly in. It's in the Constitution of the United States, Declaration of Independence, and to, in shorthand, justice delayed is justice denied. And those are the things that you can track absolutely straight to 1775-6. You can take it forward to... Uh, 1783, 
the end of the war, 1787, the uh, miracle at Philadelphia, we call it, after Catherine Drinker Bowen's oh, wonderful book. Still the best book. People think constitutional history is dull and dry, and I took several courses as an undergraduate where I don't know why I stayed a history major, but I did. But that book explains it all. It does. It's a wonderful book. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. And it was written 35 years ago, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still as valid today as it was then. Well, let me ask you one quick question before we get to justice delayed to Justice Knight, because I'm going to do this for Joel and bring it back into Good. South Carolina. And that is, you've got all these different dates. Why are you celebrating the 800th anniversary in 2015 when you talked about 12, 14, 12, 14, 15, 14, 16, 14, 25? Why did you select the, or why have they selected the 2015 as the, the 800th anniversary? Because that was the first time that a king had peacefully been overthrown. I say peacefully because he didn't lose his head. That was the alternative. They were going to commit regicide, and they were prepared to, I think. But they thought, if we can get this, this guy, bad King John, to agree to go back to the old promises of his grandfather, then will let them live. They didn't have an alternative, particularly. The barons at one point actually offered the crown to Philip II of France because they were so desperate to get their rights back. Mm -hmm. And that's why that Battle of Bouvines was so important. All right. Now, Joel, for South Carolina, Stamp Act crisis, 1765, first tax, internal tax on the American colonies. South Carolinians took it to court, to the state or the colonial court, and they ruled that based upon the Magna Carta that justice delayed was justice denied. So you could not say that ships could sail. They had to have stamped paper to go out. By that time, by the time it got through the courts, it was being repealed in London. But it's interesting that here in, in Charleston, South Carolina, they appealed and referenced that one phrase in the Magna Carta. I am familiar with that. Jordan versus Law was a lawsuit brought challenging the Stamp Act of 1765 because, among other things, it required stamped paper for court pleadings. Mm -hmm. And because the stamps were impounded in the Charleston Harbor, there, was no, there were no stamps to be affixed to pleadings. Mm -hmm. And without pleadings filed, uh, people could not litigate their cases in court. And so the idea occurred to the lawyers for one of those parties that this violated Article 40 of Magna Carta, which says, to no man will we delay or deny justice. So if the courts could not function because there was no stamped paper, then the courts were not open, and therefore justice was being delayed or denied. And the court... Uh, in Charleston that heard this case ruled for the challenger. And so we have the distinction here in South Carolina of having not only cited to Magna Carta as a precedent, but having a court ruling invalidating the Stamp Act. An act of parliament being yes. invalidated by a colonial court. Really? Now, now, what's interesting in that is if you read the histories of the Stamp Act and Revolution, you seldom will see that case 
mentioned. Let me add this. I told Sir Robert about Jordan versus Law, and he said, well, I need to see original documents. I can't take the uh, representation in a history book. I want to see the actual pleadings. And so I sent a law clerk on a quest to locate, and we did locate, the pleadings that were filed in the case of Jordan versus Law. And I provided them to him one morning when we had breakfast at the Great Foster's Hotel in... Runnymede. Near, near, near Runnymede. You're Egg, right down the road Eggham. from Runnymede. Well, see, that's one of the many treasures in our state archives. Yes. It's an incredible <clears throat> depository. Isn't it time also, because I'm so conscious uh, that these are called the James Otis lectures, to also give recognition to this another man, almost unheard of, as one of the founding fathers, who... 16 years before the Declaration of Independence called effectively for secession from England. Well, now, which one of you wants to talk about Mr. Otis? Well, I'll be glad to. Um, Chris Duggan, who started this program, came up with the idea of naming it for James Otis. And I knew of James Otis. I knew that he was an outstanding early colonial lawyer and he was one of the um, initiators of a group of people in Massachusetts Bay Colony who protested and let themselves be known for their position against the Crown and against taxation without representation. And they did so at great personal risk. As you know, uh, they could very well have been charged with treason. So James Otis had the guts and determination to resign a very lucrative government job that he had. Essentially, he was the Attorney General of Massachusetts, and he took on the case of Sam Adams and some of the other merchants in the Massachusetts Bay Colony who wanted to challenge uh, the writs of assistance. These were laws that allowed redcoats to come into your home or your business without a warrant and to search for untaxed goods. And this was a great affront to the people of uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, as it was throughout the, the 13 American colonies. And this lawsuit was argued in 1761 before an English court, and James Otis for hours railed against the fairness of these laws. And during the course of his argument, he coined a phrase that everybody has heard. He said, a man's home is his castle. Mm-hmm. And... That case made him famous, and he went on to serve also as a delegate of Massachusetts at the Stamp Act Congress, you'll recall. And that was really the first time the 13 colonies were invited to come together and discuss something that they had in common. They met in New York. Not all states were represented, but that was South Carolina was. It was. You're right. Anyway, James Otis was a pioneering, courageous lawyer. And when we decided to have our program uh, in South Carolina the next year after the first one in Boston, I met with a group of people in our chapter, and one of the guys there said, oh, yes, let's have a program like that, and we'll call ours the John Rutledge series of lectures. And I said, well, you know, we could do that, I guess, but let's keep it with James Otis because he deserves it, and if we keep it James Otis, we can have a nationally known brand of of programs. And that has 
That has worked out well for us. Every state that has one of these calls it the James Otis Lecture Series. I think that James Otis would have been forgotten, but for the comment in John Adams' autobiography that in 1761, in that court, the baby independence was born. Powerful. Well, and the fact that the Adams has kept all that correspondence, which the Adams papers are still ongoing. They are indeed in the wonderful biography a few years ago yes. of John Adams. Yes. Can I bring you into the 20th century? Yes, Because sir. when I arrived in Great Britain in 1969, I found that I, surprise, surprise, still had to pay American taxes as an American but I'd lost the right to vote. I was outraged that taxation without representation was alive and well and living in overseas Americans because some congressman had written a rider on a tax bill that said Americans overseas had to pay taxes, but they should lose their right to vote because they're all traitors if they're going overseas you anyway. You don't remember who that was, do you? I don't remember who that was, and I should do. Uh, and what happened then was that I got together. I was vice chairman of Democrats abroad, and I got together with Republican vice chairman, and we formed a group called, and this is a very bright, smart thing that a PR guy, uh, an American living in London called Bob Leaf coined, and he said we should call ourselves tax equity for Americans abroad, T-E-A-A. So we were the second Tea Party, okay? Now, it took us four years, but in Kansas City at the midterm convention, Democratic midterm in 1974, we got five minutes with Tip O'Neill. Now, Tip O'Neill at the time was the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the third most, the third person in the line to be president. If the president, the vice president, are uh, assassinated or whatever, uh, it's the Speaker of the House that becomes the president of the United States. This is a very important guy. And we told him about that, or I told him about that as a spokesman of the group, and he said, but that's outrageous. And so I pulled this tea bag out of my pocket that I'd been carrying for three years, and I swung it in front of him, and I said, yes, Mr. Speaker, uh, if you don't give us the vote, we're going to come and dump tea in your harbor. <laughs> and, you know, Tip O'Neill was the congressman from Boston and actually Cambridge, and that harbor was right on his doorstep, so to speak. And he said, I'm sure we can do something about that. And Jerry Ford signed that into law on the 7th of January, 1977. And Americans abroad had the right to vote from oh, that day. Okay. Now, does that is that all election, local election or just federal election? Federal elections because sure as shooting and South Carolina may, may have been guilty. But in a number of states, they immediately said, oh, well, that's good. If you're going to vote, we're going to tax you. For your residency. So under Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter gave us the bill, an amendment to the Overseas Citizens Voting Rights Act. I have the pen at home on my mantelpiece 
that was signed, one of the pens that signed that bill in the White House uh, under Jimmy Carter, that so long as you did not vote in local elections, but only in federal elections, you had the right to vote. And since it was federal income tax that we were arguing, we thought that was fair dues, and we accepted it gracefully. All right, just out of curiosity, Back then, you probably still were voting paper ballots. Oh, we still are. Yeah, absolutely. You, you still are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're st- uh, because the they're they're really they've given the job to the uh, uh, Defense Department for collecting and uh, getting the ballots to the state capitals. But being New Jersey was my last state of residence. My when I was voting in American elections, it went to Trenton in, in a bag, and after the Chad episode, uh, they decided that they would be counted. But up to that time, Americans abroad weren't even counted if there were not enough of them to swing that state's votes. But there were enough in Florida, of all places, whose residence was Florida but lived abroad, that it could have swung Florida and could have been a whole different kettle of fish if uh, their votes had been counted in that election. That's the right to the 20th century. Okay. Uh, I think it's the best example of why the, it's relevant today in the 20, the Magna Carta is still relevant today in so many ways because there are so many things that have carried right straight through uh, to today. And it is now the rule of law is alive and well and kicking in over a hundred countries throughout the world, and nearly 200 billion people operate under the system that was developed. We haven't even talked about the fact that 50 years after the first Magna Carta, there was a a de Montfort parliament, and that is the first formal parliament where there's an election popular election. Of course, the franchise was only was men only and men of property only in those days. And the uh, de Montfort Parliament was really the mother of parliaments. And that's uh, 750 years old uh, in 2015. And of course, actually, in this country, most colonial assemblies required property. Yeah, it was a property qualification. Yes. South Carolina actually was one of the first states to do away with that in the early 19th century. Uh, it was a franchise for all free white males. But that was unusual. You couldn't vote for governor, but you could vote for members of the General Assembly who elected everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but property qualifications are something that people forget were very common. Very common. Um, Joel, how are the young people selected who are invited to attend the Otis Lecture? We send a letter to all the high schools in South Carolina, public and private, inviting them to select up to two students to come to our James Otis program. Uh, Typically, the ones that are selected are valedictorians or very good students. And uh, we've had... Uh, great success with some high schools. They send a student or two every year. And unfortunately, there are some schools that have yet to send a student. Uh, they come to Columbia. Uh, we give them a certificate that looks very handsome with calligraphy 
certifying them as a James Otis Scholar. In recent years, we've given everybody uh, one of Judge Perry's books. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first year, you'll recall, when you were our featured speaker, we gave everybody who came one of your South Carolina histories, and you were kind enough to sign them, and we ran out and had to go get some more, and you stuck around, as I recall, to sign the new ones that were being brought over, and we appreciated that very much. But these students, I think, can be rightfully proud to be selected. And I told them one time, maybe at the time when you were there, that someday I hope that a student selected as a James Otis Scholar will be held in the same esteem as a student selected to play in the Shrine Bowl football game. Well, one would always hope so. And that first group of James Otis scholars, some of them are getting to be old enough to be members of the General Assembly or certainly to hold public office in South Carolina now. Gentleman Alfred is giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words before we sign off? And Joel, I'm going to let Sir Robert have the last word. Sir Robert. Well, first thing I'd like to say is that I would welcome uh, the link to uh, Magna Carta 800 in numbers TH800th.com because there you will find a repository of the greatest number of articles and references and histories about Magna Carta that has yet existed. Our teachers, I want you to listen to that. That gives you a whole lesson plan. Even more than that, there are lesson plans that are already on there developed by uh, BBC Learning, developed by the British Council, and developed by Parliament uh, for about 8-year-olds and about uh, 11-year-olds. I, I don't know quite how they, uh, how the two, two systems, the English system and the, or the British system and the uh, American system of, of ages, which I'm familiar with having gr- grown up in, the, in this country, uh, and the British. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, there's a book by Dick Howard, uh, Professor Dick Howard at the University of Virginia, uh, called On the Road from Runnymede. And that is uh, an extra reading that your students uh, and your teachers might pay attention to and have in your school libraries. Uh, the other one is by Nicholas Vincent. It's in the Oxford University series. And it's called Magna Carta, A Very Short Introduction. But it's a lie because it's 110 fact-filled pages written exceedingly well. And Nicholas has also done a book not yet published, but it's coming out in February, also called Magna Carta, Foundation of Freedom in that case. And it's a fairly expensive book, but it's the most wonderfully illustrated book. And the ABA edition, and I suspect the American edition of it, will have an extra chapter in it just on the relevance of in America of the Magna Carta in the 21st century. Okay. Those three books will really be a solid foundation for people who <clears throat> want to go on and who hopefully have become interested in what the Magna Carta is all about from the show that you very kindly hosted for us. Walter, as you know, I teach a course at the Honors College on the United States Constitution. I had it right down the hall from your office uh, one year. I wrote a paper for my course, 
And I sent it to Mark Gill, who works with Sir Robert, and I'm pleased to tell you that my paper about Magna Carta is among the items you can find at that Magna Carta 800th website. They put it on that uh, website. All right. Well, that's quite a compliment, Joel. And gentlemen, it has been a pleasure having you both on Walter Edgar's Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I was fascinated with the conversation with Joel Collins and especially with Sir Robert Worcester. I learned some things about the Magna Carta that I didn't know, and I hope that maybe you learned something, particularly that South Carolina picked up on the Magna Carta and used it, for example, in the Stamp Act crisis, the case of Jordan versus Law, where justice delayed is justice denied. That goes right back to the Magna Carta. And you had a colonial court in South Carolina basically declaring an act of parliament unconstitutional. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed by the guests on Walter Edgar's Journal are their own and not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.